The year is 480 BC, according to Mark Cartwright from the Ancient History Encyclopedia. The sun beat down upon the small pass of Thermopylae. Two armies stood across from each other, each one believing themselves to be superior. The Spartans were known to be the most savage and well-trained army in history. Yet Persia's overwhelming numbers should have been enough to strike fear into the hearts of only 5,000 or so Grecian soldiers. Though, before we can delve into the broad scope and the sheer intrigue that this historic battle offers, we first have to delve into the political background and the reason as to why the Grecians held such hatred for the Persians. This is Alex Rodriguez, joined by Joel Jensen, and you are listening to the History Retold Podcast. Persia, around 520 to 480 BC, was led by King Darius and was on a quest to conquer as much territory as possible. At that time, Persia was already spreading its long reach into Eastern Europe. Persia's empire was growing quickly, and they were only getting hungrier for power and wealth. Persia's exact number of soldiers is unknown, but most sources would estimate it to be around one million soldiers, potentially even more. Persia was the world's superpower, and their empire was nigh untouchable at the time. Now let's talk about the culture, tradition, and history of the Persian Empire. Persia was initially a conglomeration of nomadic tribes and differing clans that served many different gods and pledged their allegiance to their own clan leader. They were not officially brought together to become one nation until the birth and eventual adulthood of Cyrus II, whose name actually means the Great. Cyrus was able to unify many different tribes into a federation of sorts and lead a mutiny against his grandfather, who was technically the official ruler at that time. Cyrus had so many followers from these clans that he was able to force his grandfather into submission. He eventually named himself Shah, which in the Persian language means king. Though unfortunately for Cyrus, he still faced the problem of diversity and difference, and from some, if not many tribes, outright defiance and animosity. Cyrus II eventually died, after bringing mass unification to the land of Persia, and his son Cambyses stepped in to take the throne. Though his rule was not long for this world, he was able to add the land of Egypt to the Persian Empire. Eventually, Cambyses was murdered during a revolt that was hosted by a man pretending to be Cambyses' long-lost brother, whom Cambyses actually had murdered early on in his life. After After the death of Cambyses, a man by the name of Darius, who was a distant cousin of Cambyses, stepped in to demand the throne. He came onto the scene and had to quell many different rebellions and riots that were spawning all over his newly acquired empire. Darius was able to bring Persia's empire to heights of power that it had never seen before. Darius even brought a universal currency to the land of Persia. Eventually, in the latter years of King Darius's rule, there was an uprising and revolt in the Mediterranean area of Ionia. The Grecian city-state of Athens had backed the usurpers in Ionia, So King Darius had decided that the Athenians needed to be taught a lesson. After a voyage across the Mediterranean, the Persians were quickly quelled and sent back home in an utter defeat. Darius knew that to keep the Persian reputation of dominance, he could not let the Athenians go unpunished. Unfortunately, King Darius died before he could finish his empirical work. It was bestowed upon his son Xerxes to finish the work. Now, to transition from the culture and work of the Persians of old, let's talk about the culture and a few different war tactics that were used by the Spartan army. The Spartans were a war-centered culture. They were more prone to violence than any other activity. 
The beginning of a Spartan's harsh, harsh lifestyle quite literally began at birth. If a baby was sickly or had some sort of deformity at the time of birth, the babies would be taken and left on the side of a hill or a mountain to die in loneliness so no one could hear the baby crying. If the child survived birth and was able to make it to the age of seven, they were taken from their mothers and thrown into the army. These young children were taught the harsh realities of physical pain and punishment, but they were also taught loyalty and faith in the soldiers next to them. One account of the harsh Spartan training is recounted as this. A child was beaten for being caught stealing, but as the lesson was taught to the boy, he soon figures out that he was not beaten for the crime of stealing. He was beaten because he got caught stealing. The army and his superiors were punishing the boy because he had failed at his task, and that was one thing that was not tolerated by the Spartan army. They would rather die than to fail in battle. While these young children went through these rigorous physical and mental struggles, they were expected to master these actions, like stealing, that are not socially acceptable nowadays. The boys of the Spartan Empire did not become true Spartan soldiers until about the age of 20, and they stayed in militant service until about the age of 60. Now, let's talk about the battle and war tactics that Spartan army had become masters of. On to the war tactics. The Spartan hoplite warriors were unrivaled in ancient Greece. They were trained from the age of seven to fight in the phalanx formation. Previous to the discovery of the phalanx, Sparta preferred for free-for-all combat, but this changed when they lost a battle to another city-state, Argos, because of this because of the phalanx formation. The phalanx formation specialized in frontline combat. It was nigh impenetrable from the front, but vulnerable to flanking maneuvers. The formation involved the soldiers, which were called hoplites, locking their shields together and standing nigh shoulder to shoulder as their shields covered themselves and the soldiers to their left. They held their spears, which were about seven to nine feet long, in front to prevent their enemies from getting close. While the front rows fought, the rear rows of the formation held the spears in the air in an underarm grip in order to provide extra defense against ranged attackers. When forced to engage in close quarters combat, where the spears would be rather ineffective, the soldiers also carried short swords, about one to one and a half feet in length which were rather effective against the usually light-armored hoplite soldiers. Um, now, on to the historical importance of the battle itself. Life today would be totally different if not for the Greeks stand at Thermopylae. Much of the technology we have today is based on the mathematical theories discovered by the Greeks after the battle. Not to mention that Leonidas's last stand provided a heroic story and yet another hero for all of the Greek world to look up to. And now onto the tactical layout. On the one side of the battle, you have the Persians. Their specific, their specific number is usually disagreed upon, with a large estimate putting out, put out by the Greek historian Herodotus at around 2 million. However, most modern historians put the Persian numbers at one, around 100 to 300,000. On the other side, the Greek soldiers, portrayed in the movie 300 as only having 300 soldiers. However, on the first day of the battle, the entire Greek army totaled around 5 to 7,000. 
After the betrayal of Ephialtes, most of the Greek army retreated in order to fortify a different choke point at the Strait of Corinth. However, in order to prevent the Greek armies from being run down by Persian cavalry, Leonidas and his Spartans, along with a few hundred other Greek soldiers, totaling a force of a little over 1,000, decided to stay behind, and this is where we get the 300. Leonidas and only 300 Spartans stayed behind against the Persian horde, where many others fell in battle or retreated. Now, on to the betrayal of Ephialtes. As was previously mentioned, the Grecian army that was blocking the mass expansion of Persia was betrayed by one of their own. Fiction depicts the traitor, Ephialtes, as a forgotten Spartan that was neglected as a child because he did not look normal. Fiction says that he survived abandonment and came back to Spartan civilization only to find more neglect. What finally led him to betray his brothers in arms was King Leonidas telling him that he was incapable in battle, but that was depicted in fiction and Hollywood movies. It is not quite explained as to what led to his hatred for the Spartans, but one reason that is explained for his betrayal is greed, and his thought of reward from the Persians for giving him a way for the Persians to defeat his kindred. Now, let's talk about the fall of Leonidas and the eventual obstruction of Persia's expansion. As the battle in the small pass of Thermopylae raged on, the Persian army was able to break the Grecians. As the Persians drove many of the Grecians away, the 300 that stayed were not able to hold off for very long. Leonidas and his 300 Spartans fought ferociously they fought on two fronts, which is horrible, uh, tactically. And unfortunately, the Spartan force was not able to hold out for long. The overwhelming Persian army was able to box the Spartans in and just crush them together. Eventually, King Leonidas himself fell in combat. The remaining Spartans fought tooth and nail just to reach their king's body. They were not thinking of what would happen to themselves when they attempted to push through these Persians. They just wanted to reach and feel their king one last time. Many of the remaining Spartans fell in those last moments, and those that didn't were not able to hold on any longer. Contrary to Persian tradition, the Persians did defile King Leonidas' corpse. They beheaded it and crucified it. This was very irregular for the Persian army as they held almost religious beliefs about treating the dead with respect, especially those that showed true valor in battle, even if that soldier was an enemy.